Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Uh, today is our uh, bi-monthly discussion of the uh, phantoms uh, in the November print edition of the journal. I have with me Professor Ben Stenson and I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, I'm Ben Stenson. I'm a consultant neonatologist at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh and it's been my pleasure to edit the fetal and neonatal edition of archives in recent years. Uh, thanks, Ben. And this is, uh, there's always a, quite a variety of, of content in, um, in the journal and Phantoms always reflects that. I think that what people will notice in terms of the, the initial focus is the management of the umbilical cord in, in deliveries, especially perhaps preterm deliveries. Um, and still, still a bit of work to do and what we should do and how we should do it. Um, and you've picked the systematic review and meta-analysis uh, by Dr. Balas Subramanan. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts um, on, on this whole sort of thorny topic? Well, I think that the topic of umbilical cord management has been really interesting in recent years for the neonatal community. And uh, for a while now, we've been stuck with the term delayed cord clamping, um, which is a little unfortunate because it has a kind of negative connotation when it's actually something positive that we're trying to do, which is why people are increasingly using terms like optimal cord management, uh, because it's taken us such a long time to build the momentum to get people to realize that the babies are on life support through that umbilical cord. And if you clamp it, when a baby's lungs are full of water and they've never breathed, you're inevitably going to give them a period of hypoxia and circulatory stress. And um, the evidence has shown that for quite some time, but there's a slow progression of full adoption with people hanging on to the view that the imperative to get on with resuscitation is more important. So. I think that the things in the journal this month on the topic are interesting. The systematic review and meta-analysis of trials um, highlights this issue that um, umbilical cord milking uh, might be associated with harm in preterm babies in comparison with uh, delayed cord clamping. And it's, that's interesting to me because umbilical cord milking was a, a quick way of getting what were the perceived blood volume benefits of um, delayed cord clamping. And it was felt that that could be something you could do when you couldn't do delayed cord clamping. But in, uh, along the way, people have got to realize that um, most of the times they thought they couldn't do delayed cord clamping, they could. And then of course we had this very, very um, interesting data from Douglas Bank and colleagues in Australia in the animal um, preterm model showing the dramatic um, swings in blood pressure and cerebral uh, blood flow that are associated with cord milking, which almost kind of predicted the, the findings of this meta-analysis. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess 
when that data came out a few years ago in terms of the excess sort of interventricular hemorrhage, it was quite surprising uh, and, and looking at better ways of providing that resuscitation by the bedside where it was something that then needed to be considered rather than a quick strip of the cord to get that maternal blood into it. Because I, I suspect, um, like everything in nature, the gentle transition is usually what the, what, the body is trying to do and um, overzealous uh, increases of, of, of blood volume through a, a very uh, sort of low resistance uh, delicate structure might sort of obviously increase the risk of, of having per um, uh, per uh, bleeding outcomes uh, and that's supposed that that neatly well not that my sentence was that neat, but it neatly takes us on to the the experience that um, uh, our colleagues in Liverpool have had uh, with um, implementing delayed cord clamping using a, a specific uh, resuscitation and stabilization device. And this is in the quality improvement section in the journal. It's quite a dramatic increase. Do you have any thoughts on how that has um, helped and how that might improve uh, our situation in the future? Well, they're um, working on implementation of what might be the next level of optimal cord management, something that's still being researched, but um, keeping the placental circulation intact whilst you stabilize the baby. And um, obviously, in order to achieve that, you've got to have buy-in from the team that um, that's a good idea. And their, their work just shows how much that can change over time. But... Um, I, you know, it's interesting to notice, for instance, that at the start, quite a lot of times people would say we can't do this because the umbilical cord's too short, whereas later on that stopped happening. And of course, umbilical cords didn't get any longer in the intervening <laughs> period. It's, so that's just to me one example of how people's barriers gradually get broken down over time. And it's probably a whole bunch of different things that have enabled them to get to where they are. But it's really interesting to notice in their paper that they say that three infants were excluded from this delayed cord clamping because of precipitate delivery before the neonatal team was present. Now they probably mean that they couldn't put them into this more extended physiological protocol, but this this idea that um, the, the delivering midwifery and obstetric team should cut the cord when the neonatal team aren't there, that's... Um, something I've observed, and it's obviously plunging the baby into a worse situation than if you leave the cord intact whilst you wait for them to arrive, because at least the baby's getting something, and during that period, the baby might start to breathe. So that's just another example of the unlearning that everyone's got to do in their old habits if we're to make this truly universal. Uh, and it's and, it does... Um not wanting to just over egg the pudding in terms of puns, but the umbilical cord is something that connects, you know, obstetrics and neonatology. Um, and, you know, the, a perinatal approach to these, um, to, to these situations are probably what's required in terms of our, you know, shared decision-making and, um, and learning about, you know, keeping the cord attached and having a, a perinatal policy to, to make sure that that, that that is the case. And I suppose you've, you've commented in, in, in the phantoms that, you know, there are a number of more, 
obviously we always need more more data and more babies to be included but not excluding a lot of the babies especially twins um it might be something that we need to do in the future in order to prove benefit in the broadest uh, range of babies yeah well I'm, I'm particularly interested in the issue with regard to monochorial twins because you quite often hear people say that you can't do delayed cord clamping in monochorionic twins because there's there have been reports of sudden exsanguination of one twin into the other um, in the second stage of labor. And yet when you go and try and find those reports, it's really difficult to find detail that um, A, convinces you that that's definitely what happened, or B, gives you any idea of the frequency of it. And yet um, monochorionic twins are really quite frequent amongst preterm babies. Mm. And if they are equally likely to benefit potentially from the survival advantages associated with more optimal cord management, then automatic exclusion on the basis of a hypothetical risk would be a mistake. And so it's, it's really important for us to get data from uh, groups who aren't applying that restriction to see if they can inform us of the relative risks and benefits so that we can make any exclusions as scientifically valid as possible. Absolutely. Um, and I understand you, you've put a little note at the end of the, the discussion in the Phantoms that the British Association of Perinatal Medicine uh, and the National Neonatal Audit Programme uh, are publishing a toolkit to support teams in achieving optimal cord management in the near future. Um, that's something that's I, I know you, you might not be directly involved with that. That's something that's coming. Are we able to provide a link for that uh, to the BAPM website? Uh, or is that something that's still in, um, in production? Well, it's, there's a series of pieces of work, and um, some of them are already up on the BAPM website. Um, there's specifically the one about optimal cord management isn't live yet, so, but it will be soon. Okay, wonderful. So there's lots of other stuff in, in the phantoms, and I suppose the, the, the next thing, just to skip over one, is the, um, that's directly relevant to what happens in the delivery room or delivery suite is the uh, neonatal respiratory reflexes that may impact transition. And I think this is from um, uh, Crystal Kuipers um, and Arjun Depass's group who are associated with that group in, in Melbourne that you mentioned, um, which is quite a, I agree, it is quite a fascinating uh, narrative review on just what, what reflexes, what, what is actually, actually happening and, and what we might be doing to not necessarily help that process, but impede it. Um, interesting that that happens or is, is happening after birth. Yes, I think this is quite a, one of the reviewers actually in their review said this is this should be mandatory reading for all people interested in neonatology and it's a really good foundation in understanding some of the stuff that's going on uh, when when people um, are attending these deliveries the combination of the sense of urgency and the fact that um, neonatologists are of the of the personality type of person who likes to do stuff um, so people have a a habit of wanting to get on with things and they're not necessarily always the right things to do and um, I think it was Alan Joe who coined a nice phrase called don't just uh, do something stand there yeah. and um, you know even just the fact that 
putting a mask on the baby's face might cause them to get laryngeal obstruction and bradycardia when they were in the process of beginning to breathe just encourages us to be more cautious and observational in our approach to these babies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you're right. All, all too often, neonatologists want to, to get our hands in and, and try and accelerate the process where actually the, the gentle transition that's happening already. I mean, the, the, this has been happening for millions of years and uh, I suspect that uh, nature knows what it's doing, but um, trying to help or be over enthusiastic about helping actually might slow things down and delay that transition um as you say by you know causing the the glottis to close or having an apnea or or in certain and i don't think we know about don't i don't think we know enough about which babies will have that negative response and which babies will respond enough yet to know exactly when and when not to intervene and i absolutely agree i think that having a hands-off approach and, and intervening only when we absolutely have to is probably the, well, my view certainly is, it's probably the right, right thing to do. Well, we saw that in the article in the last edition of the journal about CPR, where how people were doing stuff before they'd evaluated the things that should give rise to the decision whether or not they should do it. And I'm sure that that applies to many aspects of the practice that goes on during transition. Uh, absolutely. Um, so just moving on to uh, a couple of, of papers that uh, think about antibiotics in, in different aspects of neonatal disease and um, uh, Rachel Morris and colleagues, quite a broad group of, of uh, neonatologists from Wales and, and the Southwest, um, looked at comparing the Kaiser Permanente uh, sepsis risk calculator with the NICE uh, guidelines um, on early antibiotic administration. Um, and quite a quite a big uh, uh, study. This one nearly 150,000 infants, but a small target population um, of confirmed sepsis. You know, is, is quite rare. Um, so, is it you know implementation throughout the UK of of the sepsis risk calculator? Is do you think that's 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 going to happen? Do you think this paper provides any any strong or firm evidence of that? You're right. Uh, one of the challenges in strategies for prevention of early on neonatal sepsis is its rarity. So there were 140,000 babies in the birth population in this study, and the authors identified 70 cases of proven early onset neonatal sepsis. So it's been easy in small studies to demonstrate that using the Kaiser Permanente approach and the sepsis risk calculator exposes fewer infants to antibiotics than using the NICE guidance. But this is the kind of scale of study we need to, to really get in on how much difference it makes. And the, the NICE guideline identified 39 of the 70 infants and the sepsis risk calculator identified 27 of them. So there were 12 more identified by the NICE guideline who got their treatments a little earlier than they otherwise would have done. Um, so obviously there's a potential for that to be advantageous to them, but there were a thousand extra infants exposed to antibiotics and all of the interference with normal neonatal family care for every one of those 12 babies. And uh, it certainly gives rise to a thought that we're at least uncertain about the risks and benefits of that. There was only one infant who died in this birth population from proven sepsis and they were on antibiotics from birth. The um, 
the NICE guidance was introduced with the best of intention, but it wasn't prospectively researched before its introduction. And what we've seen is a series of uh, audits and larger studies which at least question whether or not the scale of intervention is justified, whether or not the clinical community will just move towards something like the Kaiser Permanente uh, risk calculator or some large-scale prospective research in the UK comparing approaches will be needed to change practice. I'm not sure. Um, I think that worldwide, the interest in focusing more on early identification of infants with actual clinical signs of sepsis is certainly worth more evaluation. Absolutely, and I, I suppose it's important uh, just for people's background information. This is the, uh, I think this is the second paper that we've published in, in the journal, the previous one by Nitin Gohl. Um, I can't quite remember when it was, but it was earlier this year, I think March of this year. Um, and certainly this is a the second such evaluation, which would be an interesting companion uh, paper for people to read if they were interested uh, in this. But you're right, I think this is a, uh, a story of, of screening and a story of, of that will have a little bit longer to go, but certainly it's worthwhile. People are interested looking at the Kaiser Permanente uh, neonatal early onset sepsis risk calculator on their website. It's very easy to access. Um, and I know that the institution that I uh, work in, we've been using it for a number of years, obviously never had the nice guidelines because we're in Australia. Um, and the, the person who's led on that to be a strunk has published um, some other uh, comparisons in, in, in other journals. Um, uh, I can't remember which, um, but it'd be worthwhile for people's background information if they want to, to catch up on that. Um, the other, the antibiotic-themed uh, paper is uh, uh, on really on bronchopulmonary dysplasia, specifically urea plasma and azithromycin. Um, I think before we started recording, we were just having a quick discussion of this. This idea has certainly the idea of eradicating with a with a macrolide has been around for quite some time, and this is an interesting study from the United States, uh, a phase two trial of 121 preterm infants. Uh, looking at the eradication of urea plasma. Still have a bit of a way to go on that, Ben. Um, I, I think I looked at this paper as well, and I find it interesting, although the eradication uh, certainly was, was the thing that, that I find the most, most interesting uh, fact in, in this paper. But do you have any thoughts? I was pleased to see this paper. The, the, the question about the role of urea plasma in the uh, development of bronchopulmonary dysplasia and the potential to modify that through treatment has been around for a very long time. And it's been difficult to resolve. There's very clear evidence from uh, basic science and clinical epidemiology that urea plasma has a role to play. But um, we were troubled with the difficulties of identifying it when present and then finding the correct treatment to eradicate it so that it hasn't been possible to look at this properly. And um, uh, this paper by Rose Viscardi is really helpful because it shows that we can now 
identify the urea plasma colonization and that a brief treatment with azithromycin eradicates it. So it does at least set the scene for a large-scale evaluation to determine whether or not this has any effect on modifying the risk of BPD. It's an important step in the journal. And in the phantoms, I, I mentioned that Rose Viscardi previously wrote a very nice review article about the role of urea plasma in BPD and referenced that so that people can look back on it because it's still a valuable resource. Yeah, I've always found it fascinating that this bug is there and actually treating it has never actually proven to be, to be different. And I, I, and I do wonder, we know that azithromycin does have other anti-inflammatory properties that are not related to its bactericidal properties. And I do wonder whether azithromycin is a, is a clever choice here because it might have a, a dual effect in both eradicating urea plasma and providing some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory properties. So it's quite, I, I think it's quite an exciting therapy. And to give, uh, I know just while we were chatting, I was always looking in our, one of our sister journals from the, the BMJ family in BMJ Open. There is a study protocol for the Aztec study, which I believe uh, is uh, Salich Katech's, Professor Katech's um, study from, uh, uh, from Cardiff. Um, uh, and uh, it outlines a, a protocol for a randomized control trial uh, in, in preterm infants. So again, we'll, we'll put that link into the podcast for people to ha- have a look at and perhaps you know, get involved with, with, with some of those studies. I, I guess the one thing that we can do is engage with, with the information gathering to, to benefit our, our, our patients. Um, and to finish with, uh, and something um, that, that was interesting from, from last time, uh, we discussed about brain volumes and neurodevelopment. And this is a, a study looking at moderate to late preterm infants and their MRI scans um, and uh, the brain volumes are associated with cognitive and language scores. Now, that, that's particularly important, don't you think? Yes, I do. And we shouldn't really be surprised um, by the findings, but the fact that there are now techniques to demonstrate and analyze them is just another one of the steps we are on on this journey of releasing all of the data that can be obtained from MRIs over and above presence or absence of structural injury. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, there is a lot more in an MRI scan. I think as we discussed last time, that that we might, with clever algorithms and machine learning and um, you know AI, that we might be able to, to find out. Um, and on to, to more sort of technological uh, intervention in neonatology. Uh, and the last of, of the, the papers discussed in Phantoms was the, uh, the, the I think you've titled it Growth Charts Plus. So the, uh, the use of a, a, a web-based app to, um, uh, and the data behind it of, of growth in, in neonates with current nutritional recommendations. So, yeah, the, it's always challenging to work out what centiles we should follow for our preemies after birth, because although it might be an aspiration that they should grow in exactly the same way that they would have done had they been in utero, um, that's not necessarily the case. It might not be achievable. Uh, the, the centiles, in any case, of the kids who are born aren't necessarily reflective of the best centiles. So um, getting some centile charts 
that relate to specific nutritional management strategies is of interest. And the nice thing about that paper is that the authors provide an app that would let clinicians plot their own patients on these centile charts and calculate their standard deviation scores. So it gives people interested in nutritional quality improvement type work a bit of a toolkit to use. Absolutely. I think it's great that the authors uh, have done that um, so that um, people can have a look and um, uh, potentially validate it for their own uh, units and for their own populations. Um, well, thanks, Ben. It's been, um, I, I'm always in, impressed by the pulling together of, of the very disparate um, papers in the journal. And I think certainly from the, some of the feedback we have, people are, are like the, sort of the variety of the, the discussions. I just hope that we do the discussion justice. So thanks very much. Um, people can interact with the podcast using uh, uh, the, the website for the journal. Uh, Ben's uh, Twitter handle is at Stenson Ben. Um, and I think you're up to about half a dozen tweets now, Ben. Would that that be fair? Yeah, maybe, maybe more than that. I think you're in the double digits. It's, it's very impressive. And there's my um, Twitter handle with uh, at Jonathan underscore Davis three. And please do uh, get in touch and, and engage with the content. And we'll look forward to having discussions in the next podcast. Thanks very much, everyone. <laughs>